Hello and welcome to Pieces of Books. My name is Delima and I will be the host for the podcast. I got to finally record this version. I was undergoing so much trials and errors, wondering what works to say and what doesn't. Maybe it's in the editing, but then I got irked by the way I sound. Then there was the problem with the flow of what I was going to say, and overall it's just a complete mess. I just got to do it all over again. I just have to. Just have to. There's no other way. Eventually, I realized that what I actually need is a script. So here I am, reading a script, with a little improvisation here and there, which I had written prior to recording. It's really happening. I made a podcast. I listen to a few podcasts. My favorites are those in the range of something mystical and somewhat revolving around true crimes. I thought about making a podcast, but not until so much later, when I realized that I need to talk about something. You see, since I was younger, I've always loved reading and writing. These two hobbies are very dear to me. When I was younger, I remember I finished reading books as if it was so easy, no matter how thick the pages are. The longest time I needed was around five days, and then I would move on to another book. Now, the same thing these days, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't really do that anymore. Otherwise, it's almost like a milestone. It's like, ooh, I finished this book at around 10 days, I guess. Oh my god, that's an achievement. 10 days is absolutely my better days. I'm, I mean, the quickest I get to finish a book is probably around a month now. And it's honestly putting my younger self to shame. My attention span had reduced so much, I got drowsy so easily, and above all, I was already so tired from whatever I was doing prior to the leisurely activity. I have a 9-to-5 job now, I have to work past the office hours because we are working from home now because of the pandemic, and everything just seemed so stretched out from the normal thing, from how it used to be. We used to go out, we used to get out from work at like 6 p.m., but now 6, 7, 8 p.m., what's the difference? And I still have work to do, so I might as well finish it. I don't have anything else I have to do, right? Also, besides reading, I mentioned that my hobby is also writing. So, with writing, it's a different story. The pieces I love to write were all fictional and nothing was served for commercial purposes. Growing up, some people might label me as lucky enough to get writer as a full-time job. I did write for my job, and it's all for commercial purposes, like I said, and everything feels so repetitive. And once it all turned to business, the burnout starts chasing me to the end of the horizon. I grew quite wary. I mean, everything is pinpointed by deadlines, everything is pinpointed by goals, targets, how much uh, one leads or how much sales qualified leads that I get to I get to achieve this month and it's stressing me out at times there are moments when I wish I could just take a step back and just stay still for a while I think from there that's the idea of this podcast creation I wanted to take a break but also coming back to an old hobby of mine and that brings me to the topic of what's this podcast about Essentially, the whole concept of this podcast is that I get to talk about books which I own that I have finished reading. The topic of discussion is basically a variety of choices. This time, I happen to want to discuss a particular chapter where the author explains really heavy stuff. I'd say it's very graphic and not to mention immoral, but we'll get to it later because I still want to introduce this podcast to you guys. 
I'm gonna keep the suspension going. So this podcast is also not my intention to review book. I'm not doing a book review at all. I'm not going to talk whether the book I just read is good to pick up for the summer or during rainy days. Neither am I going to talk bad about the book, citing things such as it's boring or I don't think it's as good as people made it out to be. Because I believe that every book is its author's babies. And would you talk bad about somebody's baby? Yeah, exactly. So what I'm going to do is that I'm picking out one of the things that stood out to me in a sense that it's lingering or just won't get out of my mind. It's been years and I'm still thinking about it. That sort of vibe. Um, I actually experienced this kind of thing with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, the sixth installment of the most famous franchise from J.K. Rowling, even though she's kind of problematic. But we're not, we're not going to talk about that here. I mean, if you are any fellow Potterheads here, you might realize that she's been problematic lately, but we're not going to talk about that. Also, you fellow Potterheads might remember the very first chapter of the book, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. It's called The Other Minister. Did you remember that chapter? I read that book when I was around 12 to 14 years old, I guess. I didn't quite remember. But what I do remember is that particular chapter. The running Prime Minister of UK had just won the campaign and he got his very first visit from the Minister of Magic, Cornelius Fudge. Inside the very bland office of a muggle authority, there's a picture of a frog that would announce that Fudge wanted to see the Prime Minister. It's very peculiar to me in a way that there are two worlds colliding. And to some people, it might sound ridiculous, but J.K. Rowling had successfully turned the story so believable to a younger me and left older me wishing that the magical world is real because everything just urged me to pray for an alternate universe lately. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But low-key though, you know you know how everything just seems so believable with J.K. Rowling's writing in Harry Potter's universe? Her writing just makes you feel that the this is all real. There's something about her story that will drive you to think that it has been happening for a long time somewhere out there. Especially with Harry Potter's universe. It's the way that the wording is just so meticulous and elaborate. She has terms for magical transportation, political events, the Battle of Hogwarts, for example, the Ministry interference with Hogwarts curriculum on Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix. There's also the Wizarding Gamut, the magic world's own kind of parliament and legislation. It's, it's, you know what I mean? She made it rooted, firm, and concrete. I figured that there must be something like that out there. Maybe I just don't realize. Maybe, maybe being a muggle, you know, maybe being a muggle, we didn't realize anything. And that kind of universe, that kind of magic activity outside our reach had maybe happening like throughout the years and we didn't know any of it ever happening. So back to the story, Cornelius Fudge made his entrance like very grand, right? And over the top with flu powder. Those, um, remember the Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets when Harry Potter visited Ron Weasley's house and they all traveled by flu powder and they all have to say their destination very clearly and then Harry said diagonally and then he, end up in, he ended up in nocturnally, right? So Cornelius Fudge entered the Prime Minister's office with flu powder, all dusty and blazing emerald fire from the fireplace. Imagine seeing that right upon your eyes. You wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't like, 
was that guy just show up out of the blue from from a fire from a green emerald fire did i just lose my mind you'd probably think of that at some point the prime minister asked cornelius fudge whether he was a hoax and i never really forgot how fudge replied him gently with a simple no i'm afraid not <laughs> it's like i think fudge was turning something into a gerbil I don't quite remember. I just I just remember that he turned something with his wand and then put put his wand back into his coat. Like nonchalantly, like everything was just easy breezy beautiful cover girl. <laughs> like everything is just easy peasy lemon, you know? The prime minister had seen or witnessed wizards every day in his life. It's a blatant example of one of many book collections inside my bedroom. Like, I might forget the rest of the story due to such a long time since I last read it. But there's always that particular point where my memory just decided that it's very important. I kept remembering it for a full decade. I even remembered how Fudge turned something into a gerbil. I think it's a, it's a cup or something. It is that stood out to me. So I kept remembering it. It's been 12 to 14 years, I guess. No, I guess 14 years. Yeah. So these pieces of stories, or pieces of books, I might say, is where I get the idea for the name of this podcast. Pieces of books. See, imagine yourself eating a cake. When you're eating a cake, there are layers to it. As you cut, you can see the inside of the cake, and it's going to be prettily baked. For example, like a rainbow cake or red velvet. And on top of each of those layers, there will be icing, whether it's the white icing like cupcake icing or chocolate, vanilla, any kind of flavor, and everything is just sugary good. And that is the exact concept that I'm implementing to the name of the podcast. When you read a book, think of it as you're slicing into a cake as you dwell into the story more. Every single layer holds something unique, and as you slice deeper, you will never know what kind of shape or layers that awaits. Essentially, it's the same concept, you know, slicing. Call it pieces of books, as in taking a piece out of the story from the book itself. That's why I'm intending to talk about a particular story or a chapter that made its impression on me. So, without further ado, on this first episode, I'm bringing you a piece from an Asian author. The book is called The Wind Up Word Chronicle by Haruki Murakami. Before we dive into the book, I think a proper introduction is needed so we know the context, who is Haruki Murakami, and what is this book about. So... Haruki Murakami himself is a Japanese author. He was born in January 12, 1949 in Kyoto, Japan. He grew up in Kobe and then moved to Tokyo, where he attended Waseda University. After college, Murakami opened a small jazz bar, which he and his wife ran for seven years. Oh, so that where all the jazz inspiration or jazz singing in his stories came from. Like, I've always spotted one or two jazz songs references in his stories. Maybe it's the influence from his small jazz bar opening days. His first novel, Hear the Wind Sing, won the Gunzo Literature Prize for Budding Writers in 1979. He followed this success with two sequels, Pinball, 1973, and A Wild Sheep Chase, which all together formed the trilogy of the rap. Murakami is also the author of the novels Hard Boiled Wonderland and The End of the World, Norwegian Wood, Dance, 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 South of the Border, West of the Sun, The Wind Up Bird Chronicle, Sputnik Sweetheart, Kafka on the Shore, After Dark, 
1Q84 and Colorless Sukuru Tazaki and his years of pilgrimage. He has written three short story collections, The Elephant Vanishes, After the Quake, and Blind Willow Sleeping Woman, and an illustrated novella, The Strange Library. Additionally, Murakami has written several works of nonfiction. After the Hanshin earthquake and the Tokyo subway sarin gas attack in 1995, he interviewed surviving victims, as well as members of the religious cult responsible. From these interviews, he published two nonfiction books in Japan, which were selectively combined to form Underground. He also wrote a series of personal essays on running entitled What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. The most recent of his many international literary honors is the Jerusalem Prize, whose previous recipients include J.M. Kutsi, Milan Kundera, and V.S. Naipaul. Murakami's work has been translated into more than 50 languages. His influences are from Raymond Chandler, Kurt Vonnegut, and Richard Brotigan. Now, according to his Wikipedia page, most of Haruki Murakami's works use first-person narrative in the tradition of the Japanese eye novel. He states that because family plays a significant role in traditional Japanese literature, any main character who is independent becomes a man who values freedom and solitude over intimacy. Also notable is Murakami's unique humor, as seen in his 2000 short story collection After the Quake. In the story Super Frog Saves Tokyo, the protagonist is confronted with a six-foot-tall frog that talks about the destruction of Tokyo over a cup of tea. In spite of the story's sober tone, Murakami feels the reader should be entertained once the seriousness of a subject has been broached. Another notable feature of Murakami's stories are the comments that come from the main characters as to how strange the story presents itself. Murakami explains that his characters experience what he experiences as he writes, which could be compared to a movie set where the walls and props are all fake. Many of his novels have themes and titles that evoke classical music such as the three books making up the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, The Thieving Magpie, after Rosini's opera, Bird as Prophet, after a piano piece by Robert Schumann, usually known in English as The Prophet Bird, and The Bird Catcher, a character in Mozart's opera The Magic Flute. Some of his novels take their titles from songs, Dance, 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 after the Dallas 1957 B-side song, although it is often thought it was titled after the Beach Boys' 1964 tune. Norwegian Wood, after the Beatles song, and South of the Border, West of the Sun, after the song South of the Border. At an October 2013 symposium held at the University of Hawaii, Associate Professor of Japanese Nobuko Ochner opined there were many descriptions of traveling in a parallel world as well as characters who have some connection to shamanism in Murakami's works. I'm not too sure about the shamanism, but I am agreeing with the parallel worlds. So far, I've read two and a half of his books. The other half, I haven't got the chance to finish yet, and it's 1Q84. Two others that I have finished reading are The Wind Upward Chronicle and Killing Commendator. These two stories heavily involved parallel worlds or alternate universes. In The Wind Upward Chronicle, the protagonist is forced to cross over to the alternate universe through a medium in the form of a dried-up well. This is for the purpose to solve the problems he had with his brother-in-law, his disappearing wife, and the overall problems in his original world. While in Killing Commendator, there are involvements of mystical, unreal creature that calls itself an idea. And again, the protagonist is made mandatory to cross to the parallel world to help return a lost little girl by killing the said creature, metaphorically. So by killing the, the, the idea that popped up, 
the mystical creature that calls itself an idea by killing that idea, uh, the protagonist helped that little girl, that lost little girl, came back to the original world. In 1Q84, I also remember that the two protagonists live on two completely different universes, and through one story and the other, they manage to meet in the middle. I think that alternate universe is Haruki Murakami's trademark in storytelling, a package that comes along with this genre of surrealism story. Speaking of trademark, the particular story that I wanted to discuss today is a piece extracted from the Wind Upward Chronicle. And it's probably going to be a heavier topic, so if you find sooner that this is not your type of story, please be advised. I am also sounding a spoiler disclaimer for those of you who are already placing the Wind Upward Chronicle to your to-read list. There's also a mention of rape in the summary of the story, so please be advised. The Wind Upward Chronicle, according to its brief summary on Haruki Murakami's website, is a heroically imaginative novel. It is at once a detective story, an account of disintegrating marriage, and an excavation of the buried secrets of World War II. The plot reveals a Tokyo suburban resident, a young man in his 30s, named Toru Okada. He searches for his wife's missing cat. The missing cat is the turning point in the story. When the cat went missing, Toru was faced against countless of absurdities and more absurdities. First the missing cat, then soon he finds himself looking for his wife as well in the nether world that lies beneath the placid surface of Tokyo. As these searches intersect, Okada encounters a bizarre group of allies and antagonists. A psychic prostitute, a malevolent yet medigenic politician, a cheerfully morbid 16-year-old girl, and an aging war veteran who has been permanently changed by the hideous things he witnessed during Japan's forgotten campaign in Manchuria. The description writes the book as gripping, prophetic, and suffused with comedy and menace, self-proclaiming that the Wind Upward Chronicle is a tour de force equal in scope to the masterpieces of Mishima, Yukio Mishima, another Japanese author, and Pinchon, Thomas Pinchon, an American novelist. Now, we're going to go ahead and move on to a deeper value of the story. Whenever a story is being told, we're always accompanied along with several characters. It's been mentioned before that the protagonist of the Wind Upward Chronicle encounters a bizarre group of allies and antagonists along his equally bizarre journey of what began as a search for the cat to something that eventually transformed into a conspiracy, super shady business. Here are the characters that I'm going to mention in order to fulfill context and make it easier to understand when I'm explaining the chapter. So, we got our protagonist, Toru Okada. He's a 30-something salary man who worked in a legal firm. I said worked because he had just resigned in the beginning of the story. He was an assistant to the lawyer or somebody who has more authority in the place, answering phone calls, archiving documents and whatnot. Next up, we have Kumiko Okada, who is Toru's wife. She works at a magazine company, a publishing career, as an editor. She's actually the breadwinner of this family of two. Toru and Kumiko don't have any children actually, but they instead shared a cat together. This cat is named Noboru Wataya, which is actually the name of Toru Okada's brother-in-law, aka Kumiko's older brother. In the story, Kumiko was pictured a bit impatient at Toru, who was freshly unemployed. She often came home late, and at some point it was also explained by Toru himself that they haven't slept together in a few weeks or months. It's like... She came home and then that's it. They ate dinner together and nothing happened. And it's just, it's a repetitive cycle. And funny thing is that 
these facts escaped Toru's mind and he didn't suspect a thing. Until one day, Kumiko just didn't return without a single explanation. He found out a bit later that Kumiko was seeing somebody else. She was having an affair literally behind his back and he didn't suspect a thing. Even when she came home late for so many times. Or stayed back at the office or something. Right behind Kumiko, there's Mata Kano. She's the first series of the absurd Kano sisters. The characters which I just couldn't quite comprehend. Like, Mata Kano is, some, is like some sort of a medium. Kumiko is actually the one who asked for her help to find the missing cat. And this led to Toru meeting her. Mata Kano is a very peculiar woman. She asked Toru to meet up at a hotel lobby and explain to him exactly what she'd be wearing. One thing that would absolutely make her stand out from the rest, which was a large red hat. I've mentioned the Kano sisters. And yes, there are two of them, as if one isn't already weird enough. The sister is named Kreta Kano, and she's dressed in an unstylish 1960s clothing. You can Google it by yourself. I figured that she is kind of like, I, I have this 1960s style in mind, but I can't really figure out what is the unstylish 1960s clothing because I didn't live in that era. So I'm just trying to figure out that she probably didn't have that skill in mix and matching her clothes, I guess. Or maybe she wore clothes that are too big for her. I don't know, maybe it's her hairstyle. Whatever, it's, it's said that she was dressed in an unstylish 1960s clothing. The character Kreta, Kreta Kano, her character is connected to Noboru Wataya, the mysterious brother-in-law. When Kreta meets Toru at his home the first time, she begins to tell him the story of her past, involving being raped by Noboru. However, she abruptly leaves at that time. Speaking of the character who perform rape, a rapist himself, we have Noboru Wataya. Noboru Wataya is Kumiko's older brother. He's running for a campaign as a politician and presented as a mediagenic figure. The public loves him, but Toru cannot stand him due to his knowing the guy in real life and up close. When first appeared, Noboru Wataya is an academic and becomes a politician over the course of the story. And apparently, he has no personal life whatsoever. He is said to be hidden behind a facade. He's a, he's a man of all style, but no substance. He is one of the antagonists, and Noboru is constantly changing his image to defeat his opponents, but nobody seems to notice his inconsistencies except for Toru Okada himself. The relationship between Toru and Noboru can be compared to that of a good versus evil. During his search of the cat, Toru had also wandered around the neighborhood and surveyed parts of it that he had never stepped in before. And that's when he met Mei Kasahara, the cheerfully morbid 16-year-old girl who worked in a wig-producing factory as a surveying agent of bald men on the field. Am I even hearing myself? Like, that's ridiculous, right? A 16-year-old girl who works at a wig-producing factory who is positioned as a field agent to survey, to do a survey on bald men. <laughs> It's ridiculous, I know, but bear with me. And then after some time, there are periods of so much leisures in Toru's routine. At that time, he then met an older woman who called herself Nutmeg Akasaka. Nutmeg has a son named Cinnamon and he is mute by choice. These are two other characters, but Cinnamon is, isn't quite major of a role. Nutmeg is, uh, in, in the other hand, plays a more major role in this. 
Nutmeg Akasaka is a successful woman with her only son, Cinnamon Akasaka. She is a daughter of a military man. He was also surfing in World War II when Japan invaded Manchukuo. Now they're all tying up together and they all played a part in Toru's Bizarre Journey. Here's the character whose story will play a huge part on my topic today since the chapter I'm going to talk about mainly talks about his experience during World War II and overall Japanese's invasion in Manchukuo, China. Lieutenant Tokutaro Mamiya was an officer in the Kwantung Army during the Japanese occupation of Manchukuo. Mamiya is an acquaintance of a Mr. Honda who was Toru and Kumiko's own fortune teller. Apparently, Mr. Honda and Lieutenant Mamiya served together in World War II in their younger days. Mr. Honda was a corporal, therefore Lieutenant Mamiya was automatically his superior. After Mr. Honda passed away, Lieutenant Mamiya meets Toru carrying out the particulars of the late Mr. Honda's will. So at that time, when Lieutenant Mamiya was meeting Toru at his house, Mamiya made some time to tell him his origin story about his witnessing of a horrific killing of a superior officer during his serve as a military member during World War II. He also told him how he spent several nights stuck in the bottom of a dried up well. Now, let me pause right here because did you notice something familiar? It's the dried up well. Lieutenant Mamiya fell into a dried up well, or yeah, fell is the more correct term. He was forced to jump into a dried up well because it was relating to life or death. So he had no other choice. It's different than Toru Okada's case. While in Toru's case, he deliberately descended into a different dried up well behind his house in a completely different time and era. He descended down there to isolate himself and to think more clearly. The dried up well in particular is, a, is also a medium to cross into the alternate universe for Toru. So the dried up well is like a symbol, no, it's like an, a literal medium for Toru himself to cross the alternate universe. Remember what I, when I mentioned earlier that the alternate universe is crucial here for him to cross over and understand the situation to better solve the problem, the core problem of his issue. So now that the characters have been explained, I finally arrived to the point where this particular chapter is standing on. The One Numbered Chronicle is divided into three book series originally, but the version that I bought from a local bookstore here in Indonesia is a version of a whole entity. Still, the content directory listed it all according to its respective series. So the pieces of stories that I'm going to discuss today is a result of two connected chapters in book one. They are called Lieutenant Mamiya's Long Story Part 1 and 2. The story is narrated by Mamiya himself and therefore shifting the point of view from Toru's first person to the third person point of view. Let's start, shall we? Before I begin, I would like to send another disclaimer because this one is really graphic and gory. It will have violence acts, so please, I want you to be advised before listening to this part. <clears throat> okay, so here's Lieutenant Mamiya's story. It began when he was shipped to Manchuria at the beginning of 1937. He was a brand new second lieutenant and was assigned to the Kwantung Army General Staff in Sinching. Mamiya was placed in military survey corps, specializing in map making. So one day, in the late April of 1938, the senior officer from that same general staff called Mamiya in. 
He was introduced to a guy named Yamamoto. The description is as followed. Yamamoto had a short hair and a mustache. He wasn't very tall and probably in his mid-30s. He had a scar on the back of his neck, probably a result from a blade or some kind. That the senior officer who called him in told Mamiya that Yamamoto is a civilian. He was hired by the army to investigate the life and customs of the Mongolians who live in Manchukuo. Yamamoto was said to be going to the Hulunbur steppe near the outer Mongolian border. The men, including Mamiya, would be serving as army escort for him. So there were three of them who accompanied Yamamoto on his journey, Lieutenant Mamiya himself, Mr. Honda or Corporal Honda, and a sergeant called Hamano. They set out in a group of four, accompanying Yamamoto, the civilian. The civilian, in quotes. He was said to be a civilian, but Mamiya was convinced that the guy was most definitely a soldier, and that was just a technique for cover. Most mysteriously, Yamamoto brought something along with him. Quoting the character himself, This contains a document that has to be delivered to the headquarters. If it can't be delivered, it has to be destroyed, burned, buried, it doesn't matter. But it must not, under any circumstances, be allowed to fall into the enemy hands. Under any circumstances. That is our first priority. I want to be sure you understand this. It is very, very important. As if his first reminder wasn't already pressuring Mamiya so much, he continued looking him in the eyes. If the situation looks bad, the first thing you have to do is to shoot me, without hesitation. If I can do it myself, I will, he said. And make sure you shoot to kill. So, with that in mind, (laughs) no big deal, they continued their journey. They eventually reached the fort or the border just before dusk. Lo behold, there was a small detachment of outer Mongolian troops stationed there. Dun dun dun. There were eight men, heavily armed. One man carried a light machine gun and there was one heavy machine gun mounted on a rice. The men were obviously there to prevent whoever it was that coming to cross the border. There's actually another crossing that they can use, but it's too far. Two days on a horseback, Yamamoto said to Mamiya, and they don't have that much time. So they planned to cross at night. With that, with the plan in mind, the group had decided to put up a tent where they were and waited out. That was when Mamiya told Honda his thought about the possibility of them going to die there. The next chapter, Lieutenant Mamiya's Long Story Part 2, started with them being awakened by the sound of metallic click of a rifle's safety being released. They were caught by the Mongolian soldiers who were stationed at the border. The soldiers dumped out all their belongings on the ground and inspected them with great details. So by this time, um, there were only two of them left, Yamamoto and Mamiya. Hamano and Corporal Honda were missing. The document before was mysteriously missing, even though Mamiya clearly saw Yamamoto placing it inside his saddlebag when they were walking far before they reached the border. After that, they tied Yamamoto and Mamiya, all naked, with strong, thin rope. It turned out that the soldiers, those um, exact soldiers, had killed Sergeant Hamano by slitting his throat. Man. They kept the two of them tied up all night, lying on the sand. They were guarded by two Mongolian soldiers while the rest sat not too far away. When they finally returned, there are two horses carrying men who appeared to be high-ranking officers. One was Russian and the other Mongolian. Why Russian? Russia is very close to China. They're probably, you know, allies or something. 
Well, there's a there's a Russian soldier for for what matters. The Russian officer talked to them, and Yamamoto replied in Russian. Another proved that he was no ordinary civilian. Let's just say I associated non-Russian people who can speak Russian as spy, especially in a setting like this. But with Yamamoto, the behaviors and skills already speaks for itself. So you know. So the Russian officer told him that his men and him were looking for something, and that he knew it was in Yamamoto's possession. He suspected that since none of the group had crossed the border, then that something must be hidden by him somewhere else, hidden by Yamamoto somewhere else. Now here's where it got heated. The Russian officer clearly stated that he was looking for something, not specifying what is that something. However, in the next dialogue, Yamamoto went on and mentioned, "But we know nothing about a letter." <laughs> Here was the beginning of the never-ending suspicion from the Russian officer, which led to the thing he did. The Russian officer, however, played his game. He asked Yamamoto about his intention being so close to the border of Outer Mongolia, to which Yamamoto answered that he was map-making. Yamamoto said that he was a civilian employee of a map company, and the men that came along with him were there to escort him. The Russian officer obviously didn't believe him. He eventually asked him again. Do you insist that you really know nothing about the letter? Not a letter, but the letter. It was a fatal mistake from the start. So get this: the man who came along with the Russian officer, the Mongolians, were actually shepherds. He was going on about how shepherds use their sheep in many ways. They eat their flesh and shear the wool. He asked Yamamoto, and I quote: "Have you ever seen them skin a sheep?" To which Yamamoto replied with. Just kill me and get it over with, and so he did do exactly what Yamamoto told him to do. The Russian officer snapped his finger, and the shepherd started to work. One of the Mongolian men, who looked bear-like, looked at Yamamoto and grinned. His men held Yamamoto down with their hands and knees while the man began. Wait for it, skinning, Yamamoto. I know that's why the disclaimer. Oh, I can't do this. No, I can't. Yes, I can. According to Mamiya, it was like skinning a peach. He closed his eyes so that he won't see, but one of the soldiers hit him with his rifle butt to force him to watch. Yamamoto wasn't screaming initially, but soon enough he began to. So the man started by slitting open Yamamoto's shoulder and proceeded to peel off the skin of his right arm from the top down, slowly. If you notice that my voice is shaking, well, I am honestly I'm really terrified of this part of the story. So moving on, soon rather than later, the entire skin of Yamamoto's right arm had come off in a single thin sheet. Blood kept dripping from the skin. Then Yamamoto was turned so that he could repeat the same thing on his left arm. After that, he skinned both legs, cut off the penis and testicles. And removed the ears. Oh fuck! Oh my god! This is so evil. Then he skinned the head and the face and everything else. During this, all Yamamoto had regained and lost consciousness over and over again. The screams would stop and continue again. Eventually, his scream gradually weakened and finally gave out altogether. Mamiya, who witnessed the whole thing, vomited at the sight and just couldn't stop. After all of this, the Russian officer said, "If he had known, he would have talked." 
pity. But in any case, the man was a professional. He was bound to have an ugly death sooner or later. What a dick! He also said to Yamamoto, if you knew nothing, there's no way that you could know anything. <laughs> yes, the men didn't kill Mamiya, true, but they dropped him to the bottom of a dried up well. After they uh, carried him along across the border. Eventually he was going to die as well, whether it's from the fall towards the bottom of the well or starvation if he did survive the fall to the bottom of the well. How? Okay, so here's the thing. It was traumatizing, to say the least. No, not to say the least. I think that it is very traumatizing. So I have read this book twice. The first time I couldn't finish it right when I reached that chapter. I was in too much shock over the graphic description. It didn't help then that I'm also a vivid thinker. It was as if I could see it right in front of me. It was like, maybe it was sort of like a movie that plays in my mind, but I don't know. This particular book, this particular chapter, and this particular paragraph for all the particular things, it really, I can't really picture it clearly. So it was as if it's happening right in front of my eyes. And it's very, very disturbing um, I had to put it down the first time, then I started picking it up again to know what will happen next, because my curiosity beats me to it. Um, the second time, I pushed through, and it was horrible. It was still horrible, and I kept grimacing at the crawling feeling. Can you can you imagine being skinned alive? You know, you know that feeling when you got a paper cut. It hurts for a split second because it did cut to your skin. But imagine feeling that constantly until you gave up and just died that's just that's just inhumane no human ever can be capable of such thing those characters they're not human i think they were they were like possessed by the devil or something maybe it's because of the war which i think is very ridiculous the concept of war was generally ridiculous nothing nothing was ever that serious to be you know held war off off you know, like, why would you go to war for territorial issues, for difference, uh, differences of ideologies? I mean, it's not that deep. Just, just, just think of how many lives were lost, the Holocaust, not, not to mention, I mean, um, I don't know, I just don't understand the concept of war. It's, it's like, it's so unnecessary. Man, I think the higher-ups of the military were really stupid back then. Like, let's just say that a war started off as a fight, right? It was an argument or something. Differences of ideologies, like I said, territorial expansion, or maybe something else. Most of them didn't want to go to war, but because um, this other country was like, hey, come on, go to war with me, you get benefits, <laughs> special territories, um, special other benefits for your country and your people. And they were like, okay, then I'll go to war. Not to disregard the veterans, but they were just following orders. I was talking about the higher-ups. Man, they're so fucked up for starting a war in the first place. Not only once, twice. Remember World War I and World War II? It was fucked up how they went to war over what? Let's discuss it again, you know? If, if we could call them from their deaths and like, why do you go to war? Probably, they'll probably be saying like, well... I didn't, I'm not quite sure, actually. <laughs> All of a sudden, a British accent just came out. But, yeah, you get my point. 
the general concept of war is really ridiculous. It's really confusing and unnecessary. All the lives, all the lives that were lost. So was it necessary, that part of the story? Honestly, the violence part, I am not so sure. But I guess Murakami wanted his characters to go down so dramatically so that it can be a base or a pillar of a continuance to the other part, to the other, to the next chapter of his story. Let's just say that if he made it to be a regular shooting in the head or something, or like a stabbing, it wouldn't give us much impact and it would be anticlimactic. It was truly terrifying, but I'm guessing that his way of thinking when he was designing the plot of the story told him that it'll only make sense if he tells the story that way. Which brings me to a conclusion that if he hadn't inserted this part of the story into the Wind Up Bird Chronicle, there wouldn't be a scene of Mamiya being thrown into that dried up well. And if the scene of Mamiya not being thrown into the dried up well doesn't didn't make it, then the world wouldn't be able to bridge the parallel of Mamiya and Toru Okada's journey together. So, my opinion about the dried up well is that, firstly, Lieutenant Mamiya was forced or placed in a situation that is out of his control. He was faced against evil men, the Russian and the Mongolians. They killed his friends, they wanted that documents, and he witnessed everything, right? He he saw everything. Like, if he was to get a lie from, from that circumstance, the Russian wouldn't be so willing to just let him go. At some point, those evil men would want him dead. Hence the dried up well. So he was brought there. He was... There was a thought process in his mind. If I didn't jump, if I don't jump into this well, I'm gonna die. They were, they're gonna kill me anyway. Lieutenant Mamiya had a thought process like that. And so he jumped into the well very well knowing that he could have died by the fall itself. So he just stopped for a couple of days at the bottom of the well. And that is also another risk that he had to take. Even though he survived the fall, he could have died of starvation, right? And then the connection of this tragic story to Toru Okada's story itself is that Toru's wife, Kumiko, disappeared from his life without explanation, without any warning whatsoever. She just disappeared. And the cat is also missing. But then the cat returned to him and he renamed it. And then after that, Toru was relating to Lieutenant Mamiya's story in some sort of spiritual way. After hearing that he was trapped on the bottom of the well because Lieutenant Mamiya came into Toru's house to bring that um, will document, you know, Mr. Honda's will document to him, right? And then he listened to his story, the things he witnessed during World War II in Manchuria. And Toru was just sort of like, I think he was sort of inspired spiritually in some sort of inexplicable way. So he, he deliberately... He was voluntarily going down into the well, the dried up well he found at the back of his house. He he brought along the ladder and everything. He lowered down, he lowered himself down there. And then he sat on the bottom of the well thinking about his issues, you know, his, dis- his disappearing wife. And what is he going to do? to solve all of this and then from the bottom of the well he saw he looked at he looked up at the sky and it was so bright the stars are all visible from her from where he was sitting 
and it was just some sort of um, complete isolation. I think that he really needed it to probably, you know, digest all the situations that that are happening around him. But <laughs> I guess in 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 some sort of weird way as well. Like, why would you go down? to a dried up well even though there there's no water anymore there but you know some people could have just benefited the situation because there was really there was really a moment a point where Meika Sahara the interesting girl who befriended Toru Okada in the story she she knew that Toru was at the bottom of the well she saw the ladder And then at some point she picked up the she picked up the ladder and she left him there without any way to go back up. You know, that's some sort of thing that would really concern me if I were to go down to a well because it's just like a, a gambling situation, you know, when people find out that you were down there, they're either ask you, "Hey, what's going on? What are you doing down there?" or They're just gonna like, <laughs> what if I pick up the ladder and he 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 be dead down there? Nobody gonna know. No one's ever going to find out. <laughs> what if that situation just comes to me? Like, it's just not wise. It's just not very wise to go down deliberately to a well, even though it's a dried up well. Okay, Toru, you need your priority to be sorted out, you know? Sort that shit out, even though you're dealing with some shits, I know, but... Come on, man. You can't. You couldn't just isolate yourself inside of your house where it's all warm and comfy, comfortable. You know, thinking, sort it out, sort all of it out in your bedroom at the comfort of your futon, duvet, whatever it is that you put on top of your bed. <laughs> don't just, don't just go down into some well. Come on, man. So, what do you think of the story? Have you read The Wind Up Bird Chronicle by Haruki Murakami? What are your takes on it? What do you think about the characters? So far, my favorite characters from all of that was the cat, Noboru Wataya, himself. I do believe that the cat is a male, hence the name. Honestly, I love the cat character because it, it accepts no bullshit. Not like other characters who are busy trapped in the alternate universe or busy having an affair, busy being stupid or busy wearing large red hat or wearing 1960s unstylish clothing. Like, what the hell? Noboru Wataya, the cat, I'm with you. Also, later Toru changed its name into Mackerel. That's more like it because Noboru Wataya is a rapist and it's a cat. It puts so much burden on it. Poor kitty. But what are others, you know? I I'm I am specifically trapped thinking about that skinning people alive scene, but what is the chapter that stood out to you the most? What part of the story that, that's got you thinking days, weeks, even months or years, if you probably have read it in the past? Send me your comments on Twitter. I am available at D Book Opinions. That's D, the letter D, Book Opinions. Or through Gmail. I'm also available at DelimasBookOpinions at gmail.com. That's D-E-L-I-M-A-S, BookOpinions at gmail.com. With that, I have to end the first episode here. I'll see you soon, hopefully, in the future episodes. Bye-bye.